Hello listeners, this is Dr. Meenakshi Swaminathan. I coordinate the podcast Snippets. We are at the 50th episode, an exciting milestone for us. I wish to take this opportunity to thank all of you for tuning in and hope you will continue to do so. We owe a lot to all the speakers who have selflessly shared their knowledge episode after episode. I also wish to place on record our special appreciation for the following members of the team. First, Dr. Pranish Ravi for floating the idea and working really hard to get the show on the road. Our first anchors, Drs. Meenakshi Mahesh, Radhika Sriram and Ashna Doshi. Our enthusiastic second anchors team, Drs. Anita Priya and Gaurav Chauhan. And the young anchor team, Drs. Bhavani Jori and Komal Parekh. The advisory team has been a big pillar of support. Dr. Smita Vittal, Kavita Kalaiwani, Rama Rajagopal and Rizwana. A special shout out to Dr. Partho Majumdar for the logo design. A big thanks to Mr. Mohan from the multimedia team for the fine editing and Mrs. Gigi Malati and Mr. Thyagarajan for circulating the newsletter. Thank you. Hello friends. I'm Dr. Gaurav Chauhan, your host for today. This episode is special as it is the 50th episode of Snippets. And we have with us someone equally special, Dr. Lingam Gopal sir. He is a world-renowned vitro-retinal surgeon, currently working as associate professor and senior consultant at National University Hospital, Singapore. Prior to this, he was a senior consultant in the Department of Vitro-Retina at Shankanitralaya, Chennai. He completed his MBBS from Andhra Medical College, Vishakhapatnam in 1979 after which he did his ms ophthalmology from pgi chandigarh in 1982 he underwent fellowship training in vitro retina surgery in shankanetralaya in the year 1984 he was awarded frcs edinburgh in 2002 he has numerous publication in peer reviewed journals and has written various chapters in different books he is actively involved in training residents and fellows for past 28 years Today he will be talking to us about some confusing scenarios which one faces in the clinic. Welcome to Snippets sir. Hi everybody. In this episode of SN Snippets I will talk to you on a variety of situations in the posterior segment evaluation that could be confusing especially for a beginner. This discussion does not follow any particular order or theme. Pardon me if it doesn't appeal to your sensitivity. Many of the conditions I'm going to discuss may be self-evident in most circumstances, but there are occasions where the confusion the diagnosis can flummox even experienced vitreoretinal surgeons. First, let me talk to you about a common condition we see while examining the fundus, the white without pressure. In most patients, one has no difficulty in diagnosing it. However, even this benign condition can be a cause for confusion. It can be confused with shallow retinal detachments or a shallow retinal detachment can be missed when it coexists with white without pressure. And for the same reason, the true extent of a shallow detachment can be misjudged. Retinal breaks can be imagined because of gaps in the area of white without pressure when there is none. The easiest way of solving the puzzle 
is to do a careful dynamic indented examination. By rolling the lesion on the indentation and viewing it in profile and end on view clears the confusion. Next, let us address the issue of enclosed oral base. These can be confused with peripheral retinal breaks. Again, an indented indirect ophthalmoscopic evaluation will clear the confusion in most cases. One can clearly trace the ora serrata and find that the dentate processes are protruding and enclosing an area of parsplenar epithelium, thus mimicking a retinal break. However, beware that oral base are also associated with actual retinal breaks present posterior to the oral bay, be it partial oral bay or a complete oral bay. The third condition I would like to discuss is a cyst in the vitreous cavity. A free floating cyst in the vitreous cavity is a cause for concern because of the possibility of it being cysticercus cellulose. But one should remember that there are also conditions that result in degenerative vitreous cysts. Degenerative cysts have been identified in even in a normal looking eye, in eyes with lattice degeneration and also in eyes with retinitis pigmentosa in which condition almost 6-7% to 7 of cases can have this kind of vitreous cysts. These degenerative cysts can be pigmented or non-pigmented. Now how do we differentiate them clinically? When we examine them on slit lamp by microscopy for an extended period of time, you can identify sometimes undulating motions of the cyst wall in a case of cysticercus, but not in a degenerative cyst. The cyst wall in cysticercus also has a typical golden pixelated lustre which is so characteristic that it can be very diagnostic. So what is needed is a very careful critical evaluation and thus avoid an unnecessary surgery in a patient with a degenerative vitreous cyst. The next condition we will discuss is senile retinoschisis which is often confused with peripheral retinal detachment especially when it spreads just beyond the equator. We understand that senile retinoschisis is usually restricted to the periphery close to the ora serrata. However, on occasions it can spread up to the equator. Careful indented examination with indirect ophthalmoscope would reveal its true nature in most conditions. Eschisis has a very smooth surface with no corrugations and a rather sharp outer limit. Presence of outer retinal layer breaks can sometimes reveal actually the true nature of the skysis since one can see the film of intact inner layer in front of the retinal break. When in doubt, one can apply test burns just within the margin of the retinoskysis. And this laser 
would produce a burn at the level of the outer layer of the skysis close to the retinal pigment epithelium while if it were to be a retinal detachment it would not produce any burn because there is no retinal layer close to the RPE to turn white. Beginners also confuse between Drusen and hard exudates. They both may have similar color which is yellowish white. Hard exudates are located either intraretinally in any of the layers or subretinally but in front of the retinal pigment epithelium. Typical drusen on the contrary are not only deep to the retina but are deep to the retinal pigment epithelium as well. Drusen are more yellowish than the hard exudates and since they are located at a deeper plane they have less sharp borders than hard exudates. Hard exudates are also brighter than the drusen. However, these are all generalizations. In a given eye, one can still have confusion whether you are dealing with hard exudates or drusen. For example, hard drusen, which are smaller than soft drusen, less than 63 microns in size, or calcified drusen could have very sharp borders and can mimic hard exudates. And if the retinal edema is present in front of the lesion, it can camouflage some of the features and cause more confusion. Again, in the presence of features of vascular retinopathy, such as diabetic retinopathy, a coexisting drusen can be easily, easily misinterpreted as hard exudates because one would be expecting hard exudates along with diabetic retinopathy and not drusen. One should also remember the drusen can be associated with choroidal neovascular membrane which in turn can again give rise to hard exudates. The next lesion that I would like to discuss is a pigmented lesion in the fundus and the common confusion is between a choroidal nevus and congenital hyperplasia of retinal pigment epithelium also called as chirpy. Careful evaluation will show that the choroidal nevus is more deeply located compared to chirpy and is more dull brown in color compared to a dark black color of chirpy. The lesions of chirpy are also having sharp borders and often associated with areas of depigmentation within the lesion causing lacuna and the lesion itself has a halo around its margin. Choroidal nevi can be associated with drusen or lipofuscin on its surface. There is tremendous significance in trying to differentiate these two lesions since the management is entirely different. A choroidal nevus needs to be monitored for the risk of its growth and conversion to a melanoma, while chirpy has a relevance only because of its association rarely with Gardner syndrome, which is intestinal polyposis. Next, I would like to discuss how to identify the layer or anatomical space in which a hemorrhage is located while evaluating macular conditions such as neovascular AMD, polypoidal choroidal vasculopathy, macroneurism, 
or a trauma-related hemorrhage of the posterior pole. I do not think anyone will have difficulty in identifying the true location of a pre-retinal and even intra-retinal hemorrhage. These are self-evident on careful slit lamp by microscopy. The common difficulty is in differentiating between sub-retinal but pre-retinal pigment epithelial versus a sub-RPE hemorrhage. A sub-RPE hemorrhage has a more dull red or black red color and has less well-defined margins. In contrast, the hemorrhage located in front of the retinal pigment epithelium has a brick red color and sharp margins. Very often they both may coexist in a given eye, in which case it would be important to define whether the subfoveal part of the hemorrhage is sub-RPE or in front of the RPE. The significance is that if one is considering a Wilson's procedure to pneumatically displace the blood from the fovea, it could be useful only if a major portion of the blood is located in front of the retinal pigment epithelium. Subretinal, sub-RPE blood cannot be displaced with a gas. Optical coherence tomography can be of tremendous value in locating the true level of the hemorrhage. Let's talk briefly about full thickness macular hole versus pseudo macular hole and lamellar hole. It's not always possible to differentiate between these lesions clinically, however carefully we examine the fundus with slit lamp by microscopy. Very often we have to rely upon OCT for an absolute identification. However, a few clinical clues could be useful. The presenting visual equity could be one important guide. A large macular hole is unlikely to be associated with very good vision such as a 6-9 or better vision. In a pre-macular membrane with a hole that is mimicking a macular hole, one can often see the fovea through the hole in the pre-macular membrane. A lamellar macular hole can sometimes be associated with very good vision depending on the integrity of the outer layers and hence visual equity cannot be used to differentiate between a full thickness macular hole and a lamellar hole or a lamellar hole and a pseudo hole. A related issue is the difficulty in identifying the macular health in the backdrop of high myopia related changes in the posterior pole. We all know that high myopia could be associated with a macular schisis or a macular hole. One has to rely on OCT for a clear identification. The presence of posterior staphyloma and the posterior pole tessellation, sometimes even total absence of retinal pigment epithelium, makes it very difficult on slit lamp biomicroscopy to be sure of what is happening there. For the same reason, one strongly recommends the routine performance of OCT for patients with high myopia at every visit. Let's talk briefly about how to differentiate 
the between retinal between RBCs and WBCs in anterior chamber and anterior vitreous. There are situations where this differentiation could be important for the appropriate management. Confusion can occur in circumstances when both can potentially be present at the same time or in the same situation, like in a post-traumatic or a post-operative condition. The clues to the identification on slit lamp examination are that RBC are typically half the size of WBC and will show subtle pigmentation because of the hemoglobin compared to WBC which are white. However, this differentiation may not always be obvious. One may have to use clues other than just trying to identify the cells on slit lamp examination. For example, if the anterior chamber is full of WBCs, it's very unlikely that you will not have additional features of inflammation such as fibrin in the anterior chamber. While one can have anterior chamber full of RBCs but with no fibrin. Pertinent to this discussion is the often observed presence of cells on the posterior corneal surface in patients after vitreoretinal surgery and a strict prone positioning. These are mostly RBCs and almost always clear within a day or two. In fact, their presence tells us that the patient is able to maintain a good prone position. I'll end this talk with stress on how to examine the fundus in an eye with compromised visualization such as a small pupil or a medial opacity, be it lenticular or corneal or otherwise. Using the large spot of a binocular indirect ophthalmoscope is okay when the pupils are widely dilated and there are no medial opacities. But under circumstances of difficult visualization, cutting down the spot size dramatically improves the visualization by eliminating a lot of glare and reflections as well as by being able to identify the area of clarity in the medial opacity through which one can get a good enough picture of the fundus. Surprising amount of details can be made out despite what looks like a dense medial opacity if one uses the small spot and small pupil adjustment of the indirect ophthalmoscope. Getting even glimpses of fundus view would entirely alter the management plan in a given eye. For example, in eyes with asteroid hylosis and an apparent no view of the fundus due to cataract or small pupil or both, one can misdiagnose the intragel echoes on ultrasonography as a hemorrhage and opt for an unnecessary vitrectomy. In a gas-filled eye in the postoperative period, view of the fundus can be very difficult due to reflexes from multiple interfaces. Small pupil ophthalmoscopy helps one to visualize enough fundus detail to know whether the retina is attached or not. Lastly, I would encourage everyone to train oneself to master all the tools available to us for evaluating the retina. Each has something special to offer. Indirect ophthalmoscopy should be coupled always with slit-lamp biomicroscopy and vice versa. By this I mean that every patient that comes to you should have examination with both these devices for a proper evaluation of the fundus. Each gives a different perspective 
and the added information is extremely useful in the management of the patient. My preferred examination technique is first to do indirect ophthalmoscopy with scleral indentation if required, get the panoramic view of the fundus and then identify specific areas of interest that will be further evaluated by slit lamp by microscopy using higher magnification. Disc and macula are specifically evaluated with slit lamp by microscopy. In addition, we take help from all tools that are available to us currently such as OCT, autofluorescence, OCT angiography and sometimes diangiography when needed. Thank you very much for your attention. Thank you sir for taking out time for this episode of Snippets. I am sure that this will benefit all our listeners especially residents and fellows. And thank you all for tuning in. We will be back next week with yet another interesting episode. Do subscribe to our channel for further updates. Till then stay safe.